0: I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street.
1: All Joe works on the Mississippi. All Joe works while the white folks play, pulling them boats from dawn till sunset, getting no rest. Till the judgment day. Let me go away from the Mississippi. Let me go away from the white folks' boss. Show me that stream called the River Jordan. That's the old stream that I long to know. He don't plant cotton and don't plant ate and him that plants them are soon forgotten, but all man river, he just keeps rolling along. You and me, we sweat and strain, body all aching and ripe right with pain, taught. So- that barge and lift that bill. You get a little drunk, then you land in jail. I are and see
0: song called Old Man River, sung by a man in Oddfellows Hall, located on the corner of 6th and Brunswick Streets in Wilmington, North Carolina, where there was also a dance hall, a beer garden, and a jukebox. It was recorded by Arthur Miller for the radio research project of the Library of Congress and the United States Public Health Service in the fall of 1941. The recording is courtesy of the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. In this episode, we are going to begin our exploration of the community of Durham, North Carolina, in the period following the 1898 white supremacist campaign that led to the Wilmington insurrection and coup d'etat that same year. As I established in the beginning of this season, Durham's Black Wall Street earned it national acclaim from some of the day's esteemed Black leaders, among them Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. In fact, in an article published by Du Bois in January of 1912 titled The Upbuilding of Black Durham, The Success of the Negroes and Their Value to a Tolerant and Helpful Southern City, he describes Black Durham as having, quote, A new group economy that characterizes the rise of the Negro American, the closed circle of social intercourse, teaching and preaching, buying and selling, employing and hiring and even manufacturing, which, because it is confined chiefly to Negroes, escapes the notice of the white world. In all colored groups, one may notice something of this cooperation in church, school and grocery store. But in Durham, the development has surpassed most other groups and become of economic importance to the whole town. There are, for instance, among the colored people of the town, 15 grocery stores, eight barber shops, seven meat and fish dealers, two drug stores, a shoe store, a haberdashery, and an undertaking establishment. These stores carry stocks averaging, save in the case of the smaller groceries, from $2,000 to $8,000 in value. This differs only in degree from a number of towns, but Black Durham has, in addition to this, developed five manufacturing establishments, which turn out mattresses, hosiery, brick, iron article, and dressed lumber. These enterprises represent an investment of more than $50,000. Beyond this, the colored people have a number of financial enterprises, among which are a building and loan association, a real estate company, a bank, and three industrial insurance companies, end quote. In the beginning of the article, Du Bois states that its chief goal is to address what he calls Durham's solution to the race problem. He writes, quote, If now we were considering a single group geographically isolated, this story might end here. But never forget that Durham is in the South and that around these 5,000 Negroes are twice as many whites who own most of the property, dominate the political life exclusively and form the main current of social life. What now has been the attitude of these people toward the Negroes? In the case of a notable few, it has been sincerely sympathetic and helpful, and in the case of a majority of the whites, it has not been hostile. Of the two attitudes, great as has undoubtedly been the value of the active friendship of the Duke family, General Julian S. Carr, and others, I consider the greatest factor in Durham's development to have been the disposition of the mass of ordinary white citizens of Durham to say, hands off, give them a chance, don't interfere. As the editor of the local daily put it in a well deserved rebuke to former Governor Glenn of North Carolina, If the Negro is going down for God's sake, let it be because of his own fault and not because we are pushing him, end quote. Du Bois goes on to praise Washington Duke for coming up with the idea to build a monument to ex-slaves on Trinity College campus and the Duke family for donating money and materials when Durham's Black leaders later turned it into a hospital. Du Bois then praises other white leaders, business owners and Southern philanthropists, quote, But all this aid is as nothing beside that more general spirit, which allows a black contractor to bid on equal terms with a white, which affords fair police protection and reasonable justice in court, which grants substantial courtesy and consideration on the street and in the press, and which in general says, hands off, don't hinder, let them grow. It is precisely the opposite spirit in places like Atlanta, which makes the way of the Black man there so hard, despite individual friends, end quote. Du Bois later writes, quote, what accounts for this? I may be overemphasizing facts, but I think not when I answer in a word Trinity College the influence of a Southern institution of learning of high ideals with a president and professors who have dared to speak out for justice toward black men with a quarterly journal, the learning and Catholicism of which is well known. This has made white Durham willing to see black Durham rise without organizing mobs or secret societies to keep the N words down end quote. Now, I'm going to pause here because it must be noted that one of the things that is often lost in conversations about Durham's Black Wall Street is how much the growth of the city's Black community was influenced by the Wilmington Massacre, an extreme example of the subjugation and abuse of Blacks in the Jim Crow South. It is hard to imagine any Black community in North Carolina during that period not being affected by the Wilmington insurrection. However, African-American leaders in Durham ordered their steps with Wilmington serving in their minds as a cautionary tale of the consequences of Black achievement. Nevertheless, they were able to build a community that operated with a sense of autonomy and prosperity. That was unique for its time, and they did so with very little political influence as Durham's Black community began to see a remarkable amount of growth after the white supremacist campaign of 1900 that led to the virtual disappearance of Black votes and Black political participation in North Carolina until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. On the other hand, Black leaders in Durham did have a significant amount of social capital, and they used as much as they could, not only within their own community, but notably with Durham's white leaders as well. In the absence of real political representation, Durham's Black leaders became de facto spokesmen and unelected civil servants, of their community, and negotiated with white business and political leaders in Durham and throughout the state as such. But in order to understand how Durham's Black Wall Street came to be, we need to first understand how the city of Durham became a center of economic growth in North Carolina during the late 19th century and early 20th century. To do that, we'll turn to someone who has spent a large part of his career studying the history and economics of Durham. Duke University Professor Emeritus Robert Korstad.
2: My name's Bob Corsett. I'm a professor emeritus at the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University, and I'm a native of North Carolina. I was born here and went to school at Chapel Hill for my BA and PhD and started teaching at Duke in the late 1890s. And in graduate school, I studied labor history, African-American history, Southern history, and over the years, I've worked on those issues as well as on issues of poverty and kind of electoral politics more generally. The last book I co-wrote was on history of race and voting rights in North Carolina. And about, I guess, five years ago, i have been involved when I was doing a book on the war on poverty and trying to help Durham work with people in Durham, work with my students to Look at ways of addressing issues of poverty and understanding poverty in Durham, which was a fast growing city, lots of new startups and things, but still had a very high poverty rate and tremendous inequality in the city. And I got very frustrated after three or four years trying to work on the policy end of things. It was really very difficult to get people and even well-meaning people in the mayor's office and city council to really be very creative in trying to address poverty and part of it had to do with they had very little understanding as I saw about the kind of structural nature of racism and also of therefore of poverty in the city and so I began developing with some group of young people a project called Bull City 150 which is kind of looking back at Durham's 150 years, looking at the roots of inequality in Durham. And uh, we did a big uh, exhibit on housing inequality, another one on education. We're kind of in a hiatus right now, but looking for some more funding. But we're trying to look at how all of these different things have come together over the years to create these fairly deep structural inequalities around housing, around education, around political power, uh, and all of that. And that led me into a much deeper understanding of Durham's history than i would ever done before. And I think it's a pretty interesting place to study. It's got a really rich and pretty diverse history. Got a lot of pretty exceptional things about it, but in other ways, it's very, very much like the history of a lot of urban areas in the South and to some extent the United States.
0: And it sounds to me like your interest in inequality and structural and socioeconomic inequality is very much interlinked with race, at least in North Carolina and Durham specifically.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things that I think you can't help but understand in looking at Southern history is just how integral kind of racism and white supremacy is with the development of the whole socioeconomic system and how both it's used to subordinate groups of people, but also keep poor people, low income people, black and white, Latino divided. And I mean, there's a rich history of that throughout the region. So I think that you can't look at these things in isolation. You have to really look at the way they they come together.
0: If you could please explain how the routing of the railroad through Durham and the growth of the tobacco industry and even other major industries in the region led to the development of Durham County and the city of Durham and how it attracted both Blacks and whites at the time to the community.
2: So tobacco was being grown in North Carolina and Virginia since the colonial times and Particularly in the antebellum period, a lot of plantations started actually producing tobacco products on their plantations and they used slave labor for the most part to do that. A lot of it was for their own use, but they were also starting to develop small internal markets for particularly chewing and smoking tobacco. And so tobacco in North Carolina was was an important export crop, but also increasingly important domestic crop. And after the Civil War, there was a kind of increased demand for tobacco products, which happens with war very often. And the kind of new types of tobacco, the bright leaf tobaccos that were being grown in North Carolina were actually very popular, as particularly as smoking tobacco. And the war kind of introduced a lot of soldiers, so this new kind of tobacco. And so there was a growing demand and there were a bunch of farmers and actually people who had worked on plantations producing tobacco products who were near at hand. And in a way, the industry just kind of grew up. There wasn't very much else going on. There was a tremendous amount of destruction. You could plant a crop of tobacco in six months and you didn't have to build factories and for the most part for it. So you had some farmers who could grow tobacco. They had some experience making products. They had a supply of almost entirely African-American workers from Virginia and North Carolina who knew how to process this stuff. And Durham was one of uh, a number of market towns that kind of grew up in that post-Civil War period which attracted some of these entrepreneurs. It attracted the workers, and it it wasn't somebody doing it in isolation. There were like dozens of people in each one of these towns, whether it was Richmond or Danville, Virginia or Winston-Salem or Durham, North Carolina. There were dozens of these people kind of working side by side, and they were both buying from local farmers, but they were also Bringing in workers off of those farms, most of whom had very few options other than a sharecropping of farm labor of, of some sort. And the communities kind of grew organically like that. So there was a labor force, there was a demand for the tobacco products, increasingly nationally. You had the railroads that were built through Durham, connected Durham to both supplies of tobacco, but also to markets for their tobacco. In in all of these cities, the tobacco industry was really the spur of economic growth and development in that first 20, 30 years after the Civil War.
0: And this was around the 1850s or before that? So
2: it really starts, say, 1865, 66, and I would say in all of these towns in Durham. And, you know, by 1880, I mean, we're only talking 15 years, probably This was a pretty booming tobacco town with hundreds of workers producing quite a bit of of tobacco products. The big development in Durham, I think, that sets it apart from a lot of other places was that the Duke family, Washington Duke and his son, Benjamin Duke and James Buchanan Duke, got the idea that the future of tobacco was not in smoking tobacco, which people used in pipes or chewing tobacco, or snuff, but actually in cigarettes, which was kind of a European, it's a very urban thing that wasn't wasn't very prominent in the American culture. But they got the idea that that was going to be the big expansion in tobacco. They initially hired, brought some Jewish hand rollers down from New York They didn't last very long. They didn't like the working conditions and the pay. But the Dukes were able to get access to the Bonzac cigarette-making machines and get basically a monopoly on the use of it. And so they could go from having workers make hundreds of cigarettes a day to literally making millions of cigarettes a day selling tobacco was a lot about promotion and advertising, and it already had been. So there was already a culture of, you know, there were hundreds of kinds of smoking and chewing tobacco. Everything had its own little name and special attraction and stuff. And so they just applied a lot of that kind of know-how to cigarettes and were able to really begin to develop a national market for their products. And by 1890, it was one of the the largest industries in the country, and the Dukes and their, their associates, and a lot of people in Durham had made uh, huge, huge profits out of it. Were
0: there any other industries that also were lucrative that really helped to build up Durham at the time?
2: Yeah, so I mean, the other industry that really propelled Southern industrialization was cotton textiles. Again, an industry that had its development in the antebellum period was seized upon in the aftermath of the Civil War as the way of industrializing and kind of creating opportunity in the South. Textiles didn't require a lot huge capital investment. The labor to run the textile mills wasn't that sophisticated. And so there was growth and kind of small and initially in these rural countrysides along the rivers in North and South Carolina. And eventually they move into Durham and the Dukes and others in Durham pick up by the 1880s, 1890s. They've got all this extra capital for one thing that they're realizing from the tobacco industry that they need to invest. I mean, there's only so many cigarettes that people can smoke. And so the textile industry was a great outlay place to invest their capital And so in Durham, they invest in a number of textile mills and also hosiery mills that get built. And those really up until the turn of the century, those two industries really grow up side by side. And again, that's true in Winston-Salem. It's true in places like Danville. These tobacco towns, there were largely tobacco and textile towns. And so that just kind of increases the wealth. And one of the things that that does is brings increasing number of white workers into Durham because the textile industry for a whole variety of complicated reasons was almost entirely white labor. It was seen as this promise for poor whites who were being relegated to tenant farming in the countrysides as well. And so it was promoted in many of these places as a salvation for poor whites and the Dukes and the people in Durham did the same thing. Young Women, girls, really, and families, mothers and families were the first to come in off the farms. They were expendable labor on the farms. They could be sent into town to work while the men still tried to make a go of it, growing tobacco, cotton, corn, whatever they were growing.
0: And I'm assuming Uh, as African-Americans started to be attracted to the area because of the opportunity for employment, they started to compete with white labor Is that correct?
2: Well, uh, actually, African-Americans were the first workers to come into Durham because they had the skills, particularly in the processing of tobacco leaf and the stemming and drying, all, all the things that gets tobacco ready to be actually processed as smoking and chewing tobacco. And with the introduction of cigarettes, again, because they were machine jobs, they were kind of reserved for whites but that's kind of a later development. So the initial movement of people off the land into Durham was almost entirely African-Americans because those were the people who had the skills and the, the knowledge to work the tobacco. As whites come into the industry and move into textiles, the industries remain racially very segregated and very segmented. The jobs of preparing the tobacco, the dirtiest, the hardest, kind of jobs were held by african-american men and women women predominated because of the hand stemming that was required and so there was really very little competition between them because and that's one of the ways in which industrialists maintained a certain kind of order and stability and occasionally they use black workers against white workers if there were there's threats of strikes or unionizations but by and large the rigidities that were in the Industry right from the beginning stayed there until really until the 1960s and the kind of forced desegregation of the textile industry by the federal government.
3: Daniel Spaulding was born in 1773 in Duplin County, served for a time as a slave to Samuel Swindell, was officially freed in 1825. He married Edith Delta Jacobs, an Indian born in 1786. He farmed and distilled turpentine, two typical industries of the time, on land that he owned as early as 1817. Near Slade's home, they were the parents of ten children—nine sons and one daughter. To the nine sons and one daughter combined, eighty-three children were born. That's a brief statement on his background. Yeah, well, that's your Edith Baldwin. I mean, uh, Ben Baldwin is the first known Baldwin. Okay. I am the fifth generation okay. from Ben. Okay. And. Uh, I spent 10 years a uh, co-author and we've authored this book, oh. The Genealogy of the Spaldens. And uh, it uh, carries uh, the, the history, the origin of the Spalding name, the origin of the community and the history of North Carolina mm. and how we came a part of North Carolina.
0: Just listening to part of an interview with John Andrew Spaulding. Spaulding was recounting some of the history of the early life of his ancestor, Benjamin Spaulding. Born into slavery in 1786 as the son of a white plantation owner, Benjamin Spaulding was legally freed as a young man in 1825 by magnumission papers filed in Columbus County, North Carolina courts though earlier census records indicate he may have lived as a free man for years prior to that date, according to his biography from the Benjamin and Edith Spaulding Descendants Association. Benjamin married Edith Delphia Freeman Spaulding, who was a Native American from Bladen County, also born in 1786. Benjamin and Edith acquired land as well as a mill in Farmers Union, where they became skilled farmers and turpentine distillers. The Spauldings had nine children and more than 80 grandchildren. Benjamin and Edith, along with their extended family, helped establish a, quote, free, independent and self-sustaining community with a school and church on their land prior to the Civil War, end quote. After the Civil War, the family became politically active. Their son, John, was elected as the first county commissioner of color in Bladen County in 1868. In the previous episode, journalist and Pulitzer Prize-winning author David Zucchino talked about George Henry White, the last African-American person to serve in Congress in the 19th century, making him the last Black U.S. congressman of the Jim Crow era. You might recall that White... An attorney and later a banker, was the Republican U.S. congressman from North Carolina between 1897 and 1901, while George Henry White was also the step-grandson of Benjamin and Edith Spaulding. White was born in Rosendale, North Carolina in 1852 to a mother who was enslaved and a father named Wiley Franklin White who was a free person of color and a farmer. In 1857, George's father married Mary Anna Spaulding, a granddaughter of Benjamin Spaulding. In the previous episode, I explained that after White was forced out of his seat in the U.S. Congress due to North Carolina's Jim Crow laws, he relocated to Philadelphia, where he became a prominent business leader. He also founded the town of Whitesboro, New Jersey, as a community in which African-American families could have a chance to seek opportunities for independence and success, such as owning land, becoming entrepreneurs, and educating their children. The town became a symbol for Black self-sufficiency and achievement. Turns out, A few other Spaulding family members are pioneers of Durham's Black Wall Street. They include Benjamin and Edith Spaulding's grandson, Dr. Aaron McDuffie Moore, as well as Moore's nephew, Charles Clinton Spaulding, or CeCe Spaulding as he was known. Dr. Aaron Moore, who became Durham's first black doctor, co-founded North Carolina Mutual and Providence Association with his business partner, John Merrick. That was in 1898, the same year that the Wilmington insurrection and coup d'etat occurred. C.C. Spaulding left his tiny hometown of Farmers Union as a young man and eventually joined his uncle and Mr. Merrick at North Carolina Mutual, which later became North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company under Spalding's leadership, North Carolina Mutual reached new heights and became incredibly successful. The street it was located on in Durham, Pearest Street, became known as Black Wall Street. The pioneers of Durham's Black Wall Street also co-founded and helped grow Mechanics and Farmers Bank, Lincoln Hospital, and so many other entities and businesses that Durham eventually came to be known as the capital of the Black middle class. The men, their business partners, and families helped create countless opportunities for African Americans in Durham that were virtually unparalleled during the Jim Crow era in the Jim Crow South. In the article written by W.E.B. Du Bois, I quoted earlier, he summarizes Durham by writing the following, quote, but let the future lay its own ghosts. Today, there is a singular group in Durham where a Black man may get up in the morning from a mattress made by Black men in a house which a Black man built out of lumber, which Black men cut and planned. He may put on a suit which he bought at a colored haberdashery and socks knit at a colored mill. He may cook victuals from a colored grocery on a stove which Black men fashioned. He may earn his living working for color. Colored men be sick in a colored hospital and buried from a colored church. And the Negro Insurance Society will pay his widow enough to keep his children in a colored school. This is surely progress. End quote. Again, all of this happened after black men essentially lost the vote in North Carolina due to the restrictive suffrage amendment to North Carolina's Constitution corruption, as well as violence. This is important to keep in mind as we explore the ways African-American leaders and community members had to organize in order to survive and even thrive without the ability to have any significant political voice after 1900. As an aside, one of the Spalding family's most famous modern descendants includes Stedman Graham, the longtime companion to media tycoon Oprah Winfrey. This interview with Spaulding descendant John Andrew White is part of the Duke University John Hope Franklin Research Center Behind the Veil Project, which is a selection of recorded oral history interviews chronicling African-American life during the age of legal segregation in the American South from the 1890s to the 1950s. This interview and all interviews from the Behind the Veil project that you hear on this season of Dreams of Black Wall Street are courtesy of the Rubenstein Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Duke University. Next, we'll hear from John Andrew Spaulding recounting some of his Spaulding family history, including that of former Congressman George Henry White. After that, we'll return to our conversation with Professor Korstad, who will introduce us to some of the other pioneers of Durham's Black Wall Street.
3: last uh, representative a congressman from North Carolina, black, was Congressman Henry, uh, George H. White. was from uh, North Carolina, right Cheney, born out in farmers union community. Mm-hmm. His mother was Mary Spaulding, who was Dr. Moore's uh, brother's child. Okay. And uh, she married a person who came to the community by the name of White. And, uh, they had a son, well, they had t- several children, but George, uh, White was one of their, their children, the oldest son. And, of course, they all had gone to this, uh, Jim Foster school. And, of course, they all then, having gone to Jim Boston school, they went to federal, federal State Normal then, just a normal school, mm-hmm. two years college. And, uh. And then he went into politics and from that to Congress. And up until Eva Clayton was elected the other day, he was a, she was the next person, which is almost 93 years mm-hmm. since we had an, a black representative in Congress from North Carolina. But he was a uh, congressman. While in Congress, uh, he got a bill through that appropriated 5,000 acres of land in Cape May Courthouse in New Jersey. For black people, and in turn he uh, got uh, Guy Spaulding's two sons, our our first cousin, uh, two uh, two sons to uh, to come up and start the community. Uh, They in turn sent back and got more relatives, and more relatives, and more relatives, and they have got a community of over 300 of us right came in Cape May Courthouse that came but it came because of that bill mm. and uh, they all they're successful they're all doing fine and of course I guess you heard of Stedman Grimm he's one of the same family oh, from, really? so, yeah mm-hmm. so Stedman's uh, uh mother myself a second cousin and uh but uh He's the most popular one probably known, well known person from that community, but a the, the number of them the same the same shape, same background.
0: this episode, I alluded to the difficulty of community building in the Jim Crow South with little to no political voice. The fact is, after Black men in North Carolina lost the vote in 1900 and the Democrats consolidated power across the state, Black people throughout the state had to employ other tactics that were outside the realm of politics through which to carry on, and if they dared, prosper, or at least try to. Black leaders in early 20th century Durham did so with great skill and prudence with the aim of staying within the bounds of the day's standards of racial propriety. To expound upon this, we'll hear from North Carolina Central University Director of Entrepreneurship at the School of Business and Managing Director of the Eagle Angel Network, Professor Henry McCoy.
4: I think certainly there's evidence that the Duke family were very critical in terms of helping Black entrepreneurship in the community. However, there's also evidence that, you know, it wasn't a paternalistic situation where, you know, the Black folks didn't really know what to do. And so they they always had to run to the Duke family. And then I say the offshoot of that is that I don't know how many actual kind of Black entrepreneurs the Duke family helped. They were a core group of Black folks that had relationships with the Duke family. And I think the Duke family certainly co-invested with that group into different things. And then I think that group is who really kind of spread the wealth, right? So this textile firm in Kannapolis that was invested in by Washington Duke's son and some Black folks from the Durham area. Also, the St. Joseph Church, they rebuilt a new one. So that one became the Haytai Heritage Center. I mean, there, it shows that that Black folks were investing right beside white folks into different efforts in the Haytai community. So, for example, whenever that church was built, St. Joseph's Church was built, it shows on the books that the Duke family invested, but also the Black community. So a lot of people know Polly Murray or her story. So anyway, Pauli Murray's grandfather, Robert Fitzgerald, was like the largest brickmaker in Durham. So if John Merrick is the father of, of Black entrepreneurship in Durham, Robert Fitzgerald is like the grandfather. He was older than uh, John Merrick. And he made the bricks for most of the white-owned factories that got built in Durham. So he made a lot of money. He also donated bricks to... St. Joseph's Church. So it really was a collaboration between the black and white folks. It wasn't the same kind of paternalistic aspect where you know black folks showing up and begging. It was really co-investment. So even like Lincoln Hospital, Dr. Aaron Moore, who's the first black doctor in Durham, who's a co-founder of NC Mutual. He also was the founder of Lincoln Hospital, named for Abraham Lincoln. So it was a black hospital in, in Durham. He also was a founder of the library in Durham, that is now the Stanford Warren Library. So he was very, you know, intellectual in that standpoint but he was a co-investor like everybody else. What you'll find is that there was a key group of individuals that you identified, they identified as, you know, these men, like seven or eight men who basically kind of co-founded all the anchor institutions. It just depends on kind of who was the lead on it. So the same individuals who founded together um, No Kind of Mutual or the same individuals who founded together Lincoln Hospital or the same individuals who founded No Kind of Mutual Insurance or the same individuals who founded Cancer Farmers, the difference was who led those efforts, right? James Shepard led the effort at NC Central. John Merrick led the effort at No Kind of Mutual. And so it was this group of individuals who worked closely together, who had built a certain amount of social capital and trust amongst each other to get these institutions built. And they ended up being the anchor institution for what became Black Wall Street. But again, the key impetus of that was by getting Black folks able to work in the factories, the tobacco factories and the segregated textile factories, Those Black folks had enough ingenuity and entrepreneurialism that they brought the money back to the Black community, and they themselves created businesses that would recapture those dollars as they were spent. They were very thoughtful and intentional about that kind of work to make sure that the Black community really could get whatever they needed from the Haytai side of the railroad track. John Merrick, Dr. Aaron Moore, there was W.G. Pearson, there was James Shepard. Like I said, Robert Fitzgerald, he was older than them, so he was kind of there. But then, you know, he passed away. So it was that kind of core group. And those individuals, like I said, C.C. Spalding was Dr. Aaron Moore's nephew who came and took over No of Mutual. And so those individuals, again, had their own particular kind of area of focus. And so No Class Central University is the first publicly supported liberal arts HBCU in the country, right? And so it started out as a religious school, James Shepard. So if you look at the articles in Corporation, you have like James Shepard on the top, you you have Aaron Moore, you have John Merrick, all these kind of folks underneath it. One of the interesting things about it is when you look back at kind of an origin story, I always find this fascinating. A lot of the origin story goes back to Shaw University in Raleigh. Many of these individuals, many of them graduate from Shaw. Shaw had a medical school at one point. And so, you know, that's where Dr. Aaron Moore came from. W.G. Pearson, he was actually an educator. So he became known as kind of the first black superintendent of schools. So he's the one to help negotiate school situations in, in the city uh, with the white folks. And so they they really all work together in a, in a very efficient way. They trust each other. They built social capital, which speaks a lot to that idea of getting to know people. You know, one of those kind of little known stories that doesn't get told all the time is that there was actually a situation where a young man showed up in Durham at some point, a young African-American who was, you know, really a fast talker. He talked about how he could do this, he could do that. And this group of collaborators came together and they actually invested in him to create like a venture capital fund and investment bank kind of situation to add to the ecosystem. So, you know, these are all the most prominent black folks in Durham. They invested in this young man. And so this goes on for a couple of years and this young man is running two entities, you know, collecting money and investing in businesses. Well, one day he disappeared. He just totally disappeared, along with all the money. You know, the interesting thing about it is, I mean, they lost a ton of money in that in that situation. Again, this guy that showed up from out of town and sweet-talked to everybody, took over these businesses, and then disappeared all the money. But one of the interesting things about it is that because of the kind of trust and social capital that they had amongst each other, it didn't tear apart the relationship, right? I mean, they still continue to invest in new ideas and things like that, which is something that you often see in the broader Kind of marketplace where you say, well, look, we're going to have some success, we're going to have some failures, but we're going to keep moving on. And so that's what you saw from this group of individuals who, again, were the anchors of what became the Haytay community. You know, the Merrick family, the Spalding family, they became kind of the anchors. And one of the interesting things about it, if you look at how the ecosystem worked, it ended up really working a lot like you know you see in the white ecosystems a lot of the black prominent families were marrying each other all they were marrying their kids off to each other, right? To kind of maintain. So you know it's it's interesting to see how things get replicated even in these environments.
0: It sounds fascinating. It also sounds like something you don't hear much of the economic cooperation, not that <laughs> you know, but to the extent that they really help buttress an entire community, right, and help people have a livelihood and a civic sort of organizational system where people are able to support themselves and their families. And when you talk about the Black communities ecosystem compared to the white communities, it's actually, you know, not very surprising when you look at how Black folks really adopted those Judeo-Christian Victorian social guidelines because a lot of them believed in those doctrines, but also It was a way to assimilate into American society. Black people were always being told they were not worthy, we're not good enough, and we're uncivilized and barbaric and, you know, (laughs) akin to dogs and all kinds of other animals. So how do you get people who are constantly second guessing or discrediting your worth to accept you? You assimilate into their way of life. So obviously, we just talked about racism and how it was still very much part of the social fabric of the South and including Durham at this time. How do you think Durham, how did it differ from other communities, especially Black communities in the South at that time in terms of the New South and the opportunities that were available there?
4: I think a couple of things. I think it is important. I mean, you know, people romanticize Things all the time. Right. Most of us do. You know, you look back at relationships and you think about the good stuff and not always the bad stuff. And let's say everything was bad. So I think the same thing happens in, in these kind of stories. Right. You hear about, you know, kind of what it was. And I always tell people that, you know, it, there was a lot of suffering in the community because it, it was still black folks in the South. Right. So let's not kind of forget that. And you know, there was a lot of squalor and a lot of poverty and things of that nature. But Durham, it it did stand out not only in the South, but broadly speaking, and certainly I give this context to it. So keep in mind that in 1898, you had the Wilmington Race Massacre, right? Wilmington is 120 miles from Durham. But now this is also the the, the economy. The same year, 1898, that the Wilmington Race Massacre and the coup d'etat happened is the same year that No Mutual was incorporated, 1898. And so you had those two things happen at the exact same time. So Wilmington got burned down. And certainly, when Tulsa was destroyed in 1921, Durham became kind of the remaining of the, I say, the real most prominent of the Black Wall Streets. Right, it was a place where W. B. Du Bois and, and Booker T. Washington famously, when they came here in 1910 and 1911, they they really couldn't agree on much anything at that time because they were very different in what their philosophies were by that time. But they both agreed that Durham was really one of the most incredible places they ever saw for Black folks, right? And then, of course, the original upbuilding of Black Durham was the W. B. DuBois article that he wrote about the idea that you, you went to a place that, you know, you see Black men, you know, he certainly brought a little bit of sexism aspect to it, you know, Black men owning companies and, you know, that were built by Black men. And your kid can go to a Black school and get buried in the Black cemetery and all this kind of stuff. Certainly the women did an incredible amount of work that didn't get as much credit. The Scarborough family, they owned the funeral home. But to make sure of our Scarborough family, she ended up starting the first kind of like an orphanage for black kids in, in the community. And so many of the, the wives set up those kind of social clubs and entities that took care of the needy and the sick and those kind of. So it was an ecosystem that really was unique from that standpoint. You know, W. Du Bois, I mean, certainly from his philosophy, thought about the town of 10th in his writings. He talked about the fact that he felt like that, hey. You know, here's a community of educated folk. And he gave a lot of credit to Duke's president and white faculty at Duke, the, you know, that these are educated men. And when you have educated men, it shows you that, you know, race relations are much better. James Shepard, who, again, was the founder of No Carolina Central, he had a quote one time that says something to the extent that he felt like every Black person should have some aspect of education and entrepreneurship. And so partly, I think what attracted both of Du Bois and uh, Book T. Washington, this is that Durham, Hay-Town had kind of both of those things, right? They had both this kind of education anchor with the W. Bois and had this entrepreneurial aspect, which was Booker T. Washington. And so anyway, I think that there's a decent amount of credit that probably should go to the Duke family as well. And part of that is that Durham at the time, you know, in the early part of the 19th century, you know, was, we, we in Jim Crow South. We got the Great Migration, six million black folks getting out of Dodge to go up north, you know, which is how we end up with all these, you know, family members across the United States where everybody's grandma lived in, you know, from North Carolina, or South Carolina. I mean, but Black folks were actually coming to Durham, right? So Durham was a net gainer for Black folks. It was called the capital of the Black middle class, city on the hill for Black folks. I mean, all these kind of things had Black more Black millionaires per capita than any other place in the country. But a lot of people don't realize. North Carolina Mutual was the largest Black business in the world for much of the 20th century. I mean, in the world, largest Black owned business. And I think that, you know, when I talk about the, the impact of the Duke family, there still was racism, right? I talk about Julian Carr. But, you know, Julian Carr, who once bragged about, you know, beating a black slave woman in Carborough Chapel Hill. So, you know, he was very tempered in Durham. He, he, there was never any real instance that, that showed he did anything in Durham. But, you know, in 19, I want to say 1902, or 03, North Carolina Mutual was growing and they had built a new headquarters in downtown Durham. And they happened to build that new headquarters to be the tallest building in downtown Durham. Well, shortly after that headquarters opened up, the building got burned down. And so 20 years later, when they rebuilt the headquarters of of NC Mutual back in downtown Durham, they made sure they built it like a floor lower than the highest White-owned building, right? Because... It was still racism and things of that nature. There was sometimes marches where white folks would be screaming about you know what the black folks are getting. And however, I haven't come across really any instances of like like just mass burnings and lynchings and things like that. And I think again, the Duke family was so prominent that I think that people recognize that if they got crossed in a very extreme way with black folks, that that kind of gets you crossed with the Duke family. And, and you know, people don't realize just how wealthy the Duke family was. I found the first list of the Forbes richest Americans. There was 25 people on the list, right? Yeah, like Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, Eastman, who started Kodak. I mean, you had all these kind of names on there, right? Duke was on that list, right? Maybe at like 18. And so it just gives you some sense of how rich the Duke family was. And so they had an overwhelming influence on how people treated Black folks in Durham.
0: episode we'll continue our exploration into durham's black wall street be sure to rate review and subscribe to this podcast on itunes or on your favorite podcast platform especially if you really like and are interested in what you hear this is super important because it really helps us get the word out about this history and the work that we are doing I'd also like to recommend another podcast, as I often do on this podcast, for my history buffs or those who have an interest. It's called Beyond the Big Screen. I'd explain what it is, but why not hear from the host himself? Is Beyond the Big Screen Podcast with your host,
3: Steve Guerra. In this podcast, we will do exactly what the name of the podcast suggests. We will go beyond the big screen. By which I mean, we will search for the real background, context, and true story behind movies. We will interview guest experts and authors to find out what the real story is behind our favorite books, films, television shows, genres, and much more. I will see you next time beyond the big screen.
1: And sick of trying And tired of living And tired of dying But old man river He just keeps rolling